Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is the author Tom Clavin, who's a number one New York Times bestselling author and who has worked as a newspaper and web editor, magazine writer, TV and radio commentator, and a reporter for the New York Times. He's received awards from the Society of Professional Journalism, Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, and National Newspaper Association. His books include The Heart of Everything That Is, Dodge City, and Valley Forge. He now lives in Sag Harbor, New York. The book we're going to talk about with Mr. Clavin today is Wild Bill, the true story of an American frontier's first gunfighter. Mr. Clavin, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me on the show. This is a, this is a great book, and... I want to start with something that uh, I started with when I interviewed the author of uh, a book about Bat Masterson and, and uh, 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 Wyatt Earp, and that is sometimes it's hard to separate the legend from the truth. <laughs> it can be because what happens, you know, there's that that line. I think it's from the the, uh, uh, the, the Liberty Valance movie that John Ford directed, when the legend becomes the fact, print the legend, and that's happened with some of our uh, many of our uh, well-known American West uh, figures. You know, Bat Masterson had happened, the White Earp, some of the outlaws like Jesse and Frank James, uh, uh, John Wesley Harden, and it was also true of, of uh, Wild Bill Hickok, even more so because. He died when he was still pretty young. He was only in his 30s when he died. And unlike somebody like Wyatt Earp, who lived to be 80, he never had an opportunity really to try and correct some of the fabrications. Uh, you know, Wyatt Earp would go to his dying day saying, no, that wasn't true. Let me tell you what really happened. And But that uh, Hickok didn't get that chance. So there were a lot of stories that came up around him. And and what I wanted to do with my book is is see if I could. Uh, it, it's kind of a walking a tightrope. Can you can you can you just include the material that you know to be true or is probably true with some corroboration, and still end up with it with a, a good uh, riveting tale to tell? And uh, mm-hmm. that is that is a tightrope walk. That happened with Dodge City. There was a lot left over that was actually true that made for a good story. And I think that's also the case with Wild Bill. Mm-hmm. Well, now, uh, Wild Bill predates uh, the the icons Wyatt Earp and Batmasters by a little bit, and he was the uh, link to the first quick draw duel in the American mm-hmm. frontier with Davis Tut, and that that started him on the road to being a marked man, which is part of why he died so young. Uh, yes. But let's go back to his ancestry a little bit because it's, it's interesting that he is. Uh, of English descent, and that his relatives, in fact, in the 1600s, some of his ancestors farmed land owned by Shakespeare, right? It's true, and I find that an interesting coincidence because, in, to me, in some ways, Wild Bill Hickok, with his early death, with his great rise and, and, and abrupt, uh, a tragic death, was kind of like a Shakespearean character to me. But yes, back in the in the 1600s, his uh, the Hickoks, who had always been farmers, had leased land from uh, the Shakespeare family and, and, and farmed that. And, you know, it's interesting. I just heard from somebody the other day uh, who claims to be a member of the family. You, you, have to, you, you don't want to take things just at face value, but that uh, Wild Bill Hickok, whose real name was James Butler Hickok, uh, on his mother's side could trace his ancestry back to the Mayflower. 
that there that there was I don't know what the name was because you know the mother's name became Hickok and I can't remember what her maiden name was. But going back generations had had come over on the Mayflower. So yes, uh, the Hickoks uh, were farmers in England, and then finally one of them uh, made the 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 emigration to to the uh, United States and. They settled in, in, in New England, and they were New Englanders. They lived, had, Hickox lived in Vermont, Connecticut, Massachusetts. And uh, William Hickok, who was uh, Wild Bill Hickok's father, was the first one to break away from that New England family compound almost and, and take his young family, uh, his wife, I think they had just the one child at the time, and they moved to Illinois. And it was kind of a dangerous place to move to in the in the 1830s, for example, because there were still wars going on with uh, with the Indian tribes. In fact, one of the wars that was going on had uh, uh, a young captain by the name of Abraham Lincoln uh, fighting in it. Uh, but they moved to Illinois, where they became farmers. Yes. Yeah, and and the the father was uh, interested in becoming a Presbyterian minister. He he was studious. He went to college for a while, but because of typhoid fever, he never finished that. But that, mm. I think, may have influenced the, the young uh, James Butler, later Wild Bill, uh, to uh, read and write, which was fairly rare on the frontier. Right? It was rare on the frontier, and it was. A, a, I, I really thank him for that, because if you're somebody who wants to write about Wild Bill Hickok, you do have access to some of his letters. Not every letter he wrote uh, survives, and and probably some of the letters he wrote never saw their destination because you're talking about a, a, a rather uh, pre, uh, you know prehistoric mail system compared to what we have today. That was that was the case in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. But but he did write letters. He did uh, read and write. And and when he first left uh, the family farm in Illinois and relocated uh, in Missouri and then Kansas, he wrote back to his his family, especially his mother Polly. Uh, and, uh, and, and then he later in life, uh, uh, he wrote letters to the newspapers. You know, there's one famous one in the, and that's a fort, uh, story in the book where, uh, they had, there was, a, there were newspaper accounts that, uh, was, were going all over the country that, that, uh, uh, apparently started in the St. Louis newspaper that Wild Bill Hickok had been gunned down and killed in Dodge City. And that was being repeated, and and uh, a few days after this report uh, appeared, there's a letter to the editor from from who he always signed as James Butler Hickok. It's, he always used his original name when he signed letters and documents and things. And he said, "I just want to let you know that I'm still alive, and I'll, and I'm not going to let anybody get the drop on me. And and by the way, I really like your newspaper." So so he also <laughs> would write letters later in life when he uh, had his hit the the real romance of his life was with a woman named Agnes Lake. And uh, they spent most of the years that they knew each other apart because they had very different lifestyles and careers, but they wrote letters to each other. And and so some of those letters exist. So thankfully, he did read and write, and thankfully he was a letter writer because you can get a little bit more of, of Hickok's actual voice into the story when you can you can quote from what he what he actually wrote about himself and his experiences. Mm-hmm. Now that reading and writing influence was important because he loved to read the stories about Daniel Boone and Kit Carson, early frontiersmen that impressed him greatly. But the other influence that was important before he got to Kansas is that his father was an abolitionist and helped with the Underground Railroad, right? Yeah, that, I, you know, you can play armchair psychologist there, but, but uh, Hickok throughout his life always had uh, uh, a feeling for, for the underdog and for uh, fair fights and, and, and justice and and you have to think that uh, that that some of that had to come from when, like you say, his father's farm in Illinois was a, was a station on the Underground Railroad. His father it would actually you know go out at night and and smuggle escaped and runaway slaves farther north to to to, to make good on their escape. 
And uh, sometimes young uh, Jim Hickok uh, went along on these these nighttime travels, and he would be not uncommon for him to walk into his barn or into the basement of the house, and there would be you know escaped or runaway slaves who were who were being kept there until they could be moved on to the next next stop. So I think that that uh, I'm sure he talked to them. I'm sure they shared some of their experiences, and I'd have to think that that made an impression on him as a, at a young age. Mm-hmm. And it, that character showed up in a couple of stories about him intervening when a bully was picking on one of his yes. friends at a swimming hole. He tossed him, tossed the bully into the water, and mm-hmm. uh, he allegedly tossed his boss, who was uh, cruel to horses, into a yes. canal one time. So he was always standing between the oppressed and the oppressor. Yeah, and that's that the character that he took to, him. to Kansas. Yeah, yes, that's yeah, the character yeah, he took to Kansas. And in fact, that was the when uh when he uh uh how he got his name wild bill because like i say he was born james butler hickok when he got to the frontier and got to kansas he was called bill hickok uh and then uh one day he was walking down the street and there was a big commotion in the saloon there and some people were outside staring in he asked what's going on and he was told that the bartender of that saloon was somebody who was support- there was the beginning of the civil war he was supporting the the south he had sympathies for the south southern position in the civil war but there were five or six men drinking in the bar who were all pro-Union, and they decided to show him the error of his, of his ways with their fists. Now, here you have Hickok, who had grown up in an abolitionist household. Uh, he might not have agreed necessarily with the position of the bartender, but most important for him was he saw an unfair fight. He saw one guy getting bullied and beaten up by five or six other guys, so he jumped right into the fight with his fists flying uh, with the bartender to, to fight off these five or six guys. And later on, and the word spread around town what had happened, and later on he was you know walking along and there was a, a gathering of people. One woman spotted him and said, way to go, Wild Bill. And uh, that's that's the name that stuck with him for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And he strikes an imposing figure, uh, doesn't he? I mean, he's he's like six one, 175 pounds, and that was above average height. And he was lean and wiry. He had those long hair uh, uh, cascading down his shoulders and the, the broad brimmed hat. He really wasn't, uh, and he dressed like a dandy almost the way he he put himself together. There was absolutely no mistaking Wild, Hickok, Wild Bill Hickok when he got to a town. You know, people would nudge each other and point and say, that's Wild Bill. Because like you say, he was a distinctive-looking guy. He was, you know, at six one, he was probably six inches taller than the average American male at that time. Uh, he had the long hair down to his shoulders, the brown hair. He wore a black sombrero usually. Uh, when he was coming in off the plains, he would have, he'd be wearing buckskin and yellow moccasins. When he was in town, he would dress as kind of like a dandy because he liked to go to the gambling saloons. And uh, he would have a vest on, a Prince Albert frock, a pinstripe pants. Uh, and he was a handsome guy. He, he, several descriptions of him also refer to him as having a friendly face. You know, he wasn't this really, he, he was a tough guy, but he didn't go around looking like a tough guy. Uh, only when pushed up against the wall, so to speak, and, and maybe a confrontation was unavoidable, you know, people would see that those steely, cold blue eyes, and most of the time they backed off and said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr., you know, my mistake, and, and walk on. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about his 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 life in Kansas because he arrived at a really uh, uh, unfortunate time. The Jayhawkers, the Free Soilers, were uh, mm-hmm. battling those who were pro-slave, and and there there was just a lot of uh, uproar in the state, a lot of violence going on. There was, uh, you know, it was it was starting to acquire the reputation of bleeding Kansas uh, because you had, you know, Kansas, you had people. Uh, who had been coming from the east to uh, become farmers and other occupations in Kansas, and they brought with them their their anti-slavery attitudes. And then you had people who were coming from Missouri, which was a slave state, 
uh, coming into Kansas, and they were trying to uh, uh, persuade the, the people of Kansas that they should also be a slave state. And uh, inevitably, there would be conflicts, and, and, and civilian armies were being raised, and, and these the different factions, the Jayhawkers, the Bushwhackers, the Free Soil, you know, there were all these factions, and some of them, and John Brown and his sons were there instigating uh, violence. So it was a really difficult place to be because uh, you could have somebody who might be a good friend of yours or even a neighbor, but uh, get into a fight with that person because of uh, your views about pro or anti-slavery. So this is the environment that Hickok found when he got to Kansas in the 1850s, and he himself, as you can imagine, was not sympathetic to the pro-slavery cause, having grown up in a, a you know an abolitionist household. Uh, in fact, he even served as a bodyguard for a well-known speaker and leader of, of the anti-slavery movement in Kansas. And when the Civil War broke out, uh, understandably, given his uh, background, he enlisted in the Union Army. Mm -hmm. And he served in the Union Army both as a scout and as a spy. There's some interesting stories about him uh, being in a Confederate uniform from time to time. Yes, he did some very dangerous work. You know, as you mentioned, he, he was a soldier first. He was a sharpshooter, a scout for the for the uh, Union Army. But then uh, he became a spy, which involved going behind enemy lines uh, frequently. I mean, a couple, he really spent a couple of years as a spy, and sometimes wearing a Confederate uniform of a regular soldier, sometimes an officer. And uh, he had some close calls, because especially one where he was discovered, and he was wearing a Confederate uniform, which meant execution. And he was put into the shack overnight, so that at dawn he could be executed, and he managed to to escape. Uh, but the, And there were other stories in the book about other close calls and escapes. So he he chose the most difficult uh, occupation. You know, he wasn't just going to be a, a sharpshooter and, and sit behind a rock and pick, pick people off from a couple hundred yards away. Uh, he he was a very dangerous occupation and, and uh, fortunately survived. There's a there's a story about him uh, being spied from the other side of the river by the Union Army when he was still in Confederate garb yeah. uh, and escaping uh, that that. That they didn't side. do him any favors because they recognized him. You know, and they said, "What are you doing over mm -hmm. there, Bill?" And the Confederates are going, "What? You know this guy?" <laughs> and suddenly he had to go dash across the river and try, you know, with bullets whizzing around and trying to get to the Union lines. Mm -hmm. Now, Kansas was like the edge of the frontier at this time, and uh, the the he had some teamster and uh, wagon uh, driving work. Um, yes, but. The, the the place was like uh, prostitution was legal. Saloons abounded because of the Texas cattle drives coming north to get yes. catch the railroad. And yeah. uh, it, it was not a pretty place to be if you had any sense of morality, I guess. It was, well, you know, as I wrote in my book, Dodge City, you know, it was called the wickedest town in the American West. And, uh, and it, it probably was, but there were other towns in Kansas that tried to come close. You know, Abilene was one, Hayes City, uh, Ellsworth, uh uh, Wichita, to some extent, you know, there were there were these other towns in Kansas because, you know, you did have this this combination going on of the railroads making their way farther and farther west, and you had the cattle drives coming up from Texas, you know, to these railroad hubs because it made it, you know, uh, uh, economical to to sell your cattle there, and they'd be shipped to the slaughterhouses. And uh, and yes, because these these were boom towns, you had the saloons were popping up out of the ground like prairie dogs. And uh, you had the brothels, and you had other businesses that was you know singing, singing, dancing halls, and it was uh, it was they were they were violent places, and uh, but you did have people who were who were moving, and business people and families that were moving to these communities, saying, you know, we want law and order in our, in our towns. We don't want to just be you know have the have the towns taken over by a lawless element, and that's what made for jobs for people like Wild Bill Hickok to become marshals of these towns and try and tame them. Mm -hmm. 
Now, he had an encounter with his hero, Kit Carson, a bacchanal lot, mm-hmm. you say, a few nights of debauchery and drinking and Lord knows yeah. what else. Um, yeah. And at, yeah. at some point, he was gifted that pistol, the drag, Colt Dragon pistol, which he kept the rest mm-hmm. of his life. Yeah, and and that's interesting because I don't know, you know, I I don't know if anybody knows whatever happened to that pistol. You know, there's not much that we have in the way of memorabilia involving Wild Bill, which is not the case again with somebody like a Bat Masterson or a a Kit Carson or or a, a Wyatt Earp or some of the other Daniel Boone, some of these other frontier heroes, because they lived pretty much pretty long lives and were, were mm-hmm. settled in their later years and had a permanent home. That was certainly true of Buffalo Bill. It had his home in Nebraska with his wife, and they, they had four children together. Uh, Wild Bill was a, was a wanderer. So when, when he died, basically his possessions were what he could carry on a horse. And uh, But yes, Kit Carson was a big hero of his, and when Wild Bill was a young man uh, and, and Carson was an older man, uh, they did get together uh, in in New Mexico and and had an, uh, at least one night on the town, and that was always a memorable experience for for Hickok. And one of those weird, ex- well, I shouldn't say weird, but rare experiences for many of us, where you get to meet one of your heroes and he turns out to be a good guy. You know, sometimes for, for some of us have been disappointed. We get to meet one of our heroes and find that they're not what we hoped they would be. But but Hickok really enjoyed getting together with Kit Carson, and Carson took a shine to this young man. Mm-hmm. And the next generation, uh, uh, what ten or twelve years younger, is, is Buffalo Bill Cody, who admired Hickok, and they became good friends too. They did. That was one of the pleasures of, of when I did the research for the book, because you might think uh, going into it, certainly I did. You kind of wonder, oh, was that part of the myth that that two of the most famous, if not the most favorite, famous figures of the American frontier after the Civil War, uh, Buffalo Bill and Wild Bill, were friends? And I found that they really were. There was about a 10-year age difference. Hickok was older. Uh, he had saved the young when uh, Billy Cody from a, from a severe beating or worse when, when Billy Cody was only 11 years old. That's how they first met. And they kept, you know, meeting up with each other, encountering each other. No matter how big the frontier was, they always found a way to, to cross paths with each other. And years later, there's a story in the book that Hickok and an army uh, uh, troop of, troop of uh, cavalrymen are trapped in, in the snow in the mountains, and it's, it's Cody who leads the uh, the rescue party that 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 saves their lives. So they, until mm-hmm. the day Hickok died, yes, Wild Bill, Buffalo Bill were close friends. Yeah, and we we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Hickok um, being uh, so handy with a gun. Somebody talked about him handling the speed, the pistol with the speed of lightning. Yeah, he was very good with a gun. Yeah, and he that's really part of his law enforcement. It is. He really cared about guns, and I don't mean that in the sense that he was he was was looking to kill people. He again, he only engaged in, in gunplay and confrontations when there was no other way out of a situation, and when he was when he was a lawman. Uh, and sometimes people challenged him, or, or people were doing in the act of committing crimes, and he had to use his guns. But uh, he he could he taught himself. He found he had a talent for it, you know, a born talent for for, for with guns. But he also worked very hard at teaching himself uh, not only how to shoot accurately, but shoot accurately with both hands, left as well as right, and to, to draw quickly. Um, like I say, he he would avoid he, he he would avoid confrontations. But if he had to involve in gunplay, he was going to shoot the fastest and he was going to shoot the most accurate, and that that's how he survived as long as he did. Mm-hmm. And, and many men died at, at the hand of his gun, but he often said that he never. Uh, he never did. They always deserved it. They they merited yeah. Uh, being yeah, shot. Never, yeah, he sort of it sort of echoed John Wesley Harden's. Uh, I never never killed a man that didn't deserve killing. 
and, and that mm-hmm. was certainly Wild Bill's philosophy too. And there's there's a story in the book that uh, uh, which is kind of I mean it's 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 guys are dying, but it's also a little bit funny that uh, he is uh, he's a federal marshal, which meant that he was he'd spend days and days out on the trail of, of, of horse thieves and and other outlaws, and uh, he's coming back uh, on his way back from one of these journeys, and he stops in this remote saloon that's filled with about 10 guys, and they're just staying in out of, the, out of the cold and having a drink, and Hickok just wants to have a quiet drink, get warmed up a little bit, continue his trip. And these guys don't see this stranger, and they, they, they see the long hair, and they think he's a little bit of a dandy, and they start you know, ridiculing him and insulting him, and one even pushes him when he, when he is drinking, so some whiskey splashes on his face, and Hickok says, turns to him and says, you know, cut that out before this gets serious. Like, he, there's 10 guys in that room, and he's giving them a chance <laughs> to live. <laughs> they didn't, unfortunately, they did not take that chance. They said, you know, who's this guy to tell us to take it easy? And the gun started blazing, and and, and when Hickok walked out of there, uh, there the, the were four, you know, the three of them were, were dead, one was severely wounded. So uh, there, there's an ex- example, too. He knew how good he was, and he always tried to give the other party a chance. And if they didn't take it, okay, well, this is what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he was handy with those pistols. But when he was a lawman, he often carried a shotgun as well, didn't he? He did. He was a walking arsenal because he did believe in the firepower. You know, he, he one reason he believed in firepower was that he thought it would actually prevent confrontations because people would say, "My goodness!" You know, he would walk down the middle of the street. Well, let's say when he was a, the marshal of Abilene, Kansas, and he would have his 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 two Colt pistols with their handles out in his holsters. And he would have a, two Derringers he would be wearing inside his vest. He'd be holding a shotgun. He'd have a Bowie knife that stuck in his belt. Now, very few people are going to think, you know, this is a guy I want to take on. So it, it actually persuaded people not to confront him and, and do some, and do wrongdoing in his presence. Uh, but he also, the second reason is he believed if there was going to be shooting, he didn't want to be outgunned. So, uh, so yeah, he, he, ca- he carried a shotgun in addition to everything else he was wearing. Now, throughout these, these years, he was at times a lawman. At times, of, uh, he was working for a stage uh, stage or wagon c- company. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also was a guide. He did shooting exhibitions. Yes. Um, and he got close to Custer. Fortunately, not at the wrong time, but right. uh, he was a scout with Custer's people, right? He was after the Civil War. Uh, you know, Custer and the, and the newly formed Seventh Cavalry were stationed in, I think it was in Fort Harker. And uh, they were looking for a scout, and Hickok was already by that time an experienced scout for the Army. And that Custer had gone out there to take command, and he brought his wife, Libby, who was 24 years old at the time, brought his wife, Libby, with him uh, to be to this post uh, where he'd be for an indefinite period of time. And there's a passage, one of my favorite passages in the book is uh, from, the, from the memoir of, of Libby Custer about when she first encounters Wild Bill, when, when he gets off his horse and comes over and, and greets her. And it's breathless. I mean, she just was immediately infatuated with with Wild Bill Hickok. And you read this passage, and you know, it's it's a it's a it's, it's almost like Wild Bill could have just said, you know, get up on the horse behind me, off we go. And she would have just taken off. So long, George. You know, it was nice knowing you. Uh, she really became, uh, you know, just immediately fell in love with Wild Bill Hickok. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, he was his tragic flaw, if we can use the Shakespearean model, his tragic sure. flaw was that he, he loved gambling, alcohol, and womanizing. And there were times yeah. when he was a vagrant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, got, he got arrested a couple of times for vagrancy because you had some of these law and order sheriffs and marshals 
they didn't like like this element of these gamblers. I mean, they would gamble all night and then just you know, loll around during the day, and that was not the image the town wanted. That you had these gamblers that were just you know kind of seemed kind of shiftless loafers. And so, uh, but that's you know when he was not working as a scout and a federal marshal and a sheriff and a marshal and things like that, gambling. He loved gambling. He loved the saloons. He uh, he loved the, the atmosphere of saloons because he, he was he liked storytelling. Whether it was him telling a story or other another man telling a story, he enjoyed that kind of camaraderie and and the the, the smoke and the, the the music and and the women inside these saloons. That was a very natural environment for him, and he did he did enjoy it. And he didn't make any apologies for it. That's who he was. Yeah, I want to be sure to recognize that part of the reason that he achieved this overnight fame after his the first quick draw gun battle was because of this article that was published later in the Harper's new monthly magazine uh, that, that made him an instant hero, a folk hero. It did. You know, you can imagine today when we have some, somebody is profiled on a, a very popular website or, or is interviewed on a very popular radio station or is profiled or interviewed in a very popular newspaper or magazine, they get they get celebrity, you know, but a lot of people know them and people want to know more about them. They're a famous actor, they're a famous politician, whatever. And that happened to Wild Bill Hickok. He has he had a bunch of adventures during and after the Civil War and there was a very popular publication at the at the time called Harper's New Monthly Magazine and they had sent a reporter out, George Ward Nichols out to the frontier to find find a guy who seems to represent the frontier because our readers back east would be fascinated by that. And he was pointed in the direction of Wild Bill Hickok. And he interviewed him for over a period of days and days about his adventures and and uh, the men he killed and, and the Indian fights and the Civil War exp- experiences and all this kind of stuff. And when the article appeared in the February 1867 issue, it caused a sensation because not only was it an exciting life that they were reading about, but the, the, the illustrations of this, this tall, handsome guy with the sombrero and the two guns with the holsters out. And, and, uh, and he seemed to represent, epitomize what the uh, frontier plainsman, uh, American plainsman was like. So he achieved this almost overnight celebrity and, and he, he, he remained a celebrity, really a very famous person for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there was a person by the name of Stanley. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, oh. I just wanted to make sure my it's, dogs it's, are barking. And I, I just wanted to close the door and didn't want to, uh, just wanted to let you know in case you wanted to stop the tape for a second. Well, uh, we can okay. edit it out. That's great. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go back. Let's try again. Uh, but, but Stanley, uh, a man named Stanley had read the Harper's article. Stanley, whose famous quote is Dr. Livingston, I presume, later. But he wrote an article where he was impressed by Hickok as well. He was, and that was sort of like that came out. His article was for the New York uh, uh, Herald newspaper, mm-hmm. and and um, it too was read by a lot of people, obviously in New York, but it was carried, you know, by other publications that picked up on it. So again, you had right after the Harper's Monthly publication came out, uh, within a few months later, you had the the, the Stanley uh, uh, article came out. So that one-two punch was way more than anybody else on the frontier, the kind of news they were getting. I mean, years later, Buffalo Bill would get would get a lot of press, but he was still, you know, barely out of his teen years. Hickok was about 30 when all this this hit the fan. So so he was poised, he was ready, and he, he, he embraced it. You know, he... You know, fortunately for him, he embraced his celebrity because it would have been impossible to fight against it. Really, I mean, people ever suddenly everybody knew who Wild Bill Hickok was, 
and he wasn't going to hide from it. He kind of enjoyed it. When he when for years he would go into the, when he was in the saloons, he would tell stories about himself. Many of them were true, but some he kind of embraced the stories that were told about him that might not necessarily be true, but they were good stories. He repeated them. Mm-hmm. And in those saloons, because of his reputation and how easily recognized he was, he made self-preservation a priority. Back to the wall of where he could see everybody in front of him, uh, just knowing that some days there would be guys who would try to make a name for themselves by challenging him. Yeah, the expression I use in the book is he knew he had a bullseye on his back. Uh, you know, we've mm-hmm. seen movies, uh, Shane is one of them, and there's a movie called The Gunfighter with Gregory Peck and, and uh, all of the kinds of movies and television shows about the gunfighter who is uh, reasonably, understandably concerned that there's going to be somebody younger and faster who's going to want to take him on because the way you knock off, you know, you knock off the old champ, you become the champ. And so he did mm-hmm. have to be cautious about that. He he would walk down the middle of the street, not on the sidewalk, because he was worried about somebody suddenly popping out of a doorway or a window or an alley and, and shooting him. Uh, he was well-armed. If somebody was going to come at him, you know, he'd be prepared for, for a real fight. Um, and uh, he, as you say, he when he was in a saloon, if he was playing cards, for example, he'd always keep his back to the uh, uh, to the wall. If he was standing at at a, at a bar, he would make sure he could watch. He was watching that front door. If anybody came in, Hickok would see him first. So he took all those precautions. And then, ironically, as it turned out, uh, he took all those precautions. But it was uh, the only way that somebody could kill him was they they got him from behind. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but I don't want to miss out on uh, the the show that uh, he he did with Buffalo (laughs) Bill for years. A very bad play, very badly written. He didn't enjoy it. His sight was going. The lights bugged him, but he earned some good money doing a show where he basically was telling tales with Buffalo Bill and others about uh, his life in the frontier. Exactly. Buffalo Bill approached him. He had this play called Scouts of the Plains, and it would basically be Buffalo Bill, Wild Bill, another actor named Texas Jack, also a, a cowboy, and uh, maybe a few Indians thrown in, and a pretty a pretty girl. And uh, they were, the basic plot was they would be sitting around this fake campfire on, on the stage and telling, and to some extent reenacting some of their most famous adventures on the prairie. And uh, Hickok at first didn't want to have any part of it, but then Cody said, well, we'll pay you $100 a week. And that was very good money then, more, certainly more than Hickok had earned doing anything else. So he said, I'll give it a try. And the play was not very good. It was, some, of, some of the lines were unintentionally funny. However, it was a huge hit. You know, they had a couple of out-of-town tryouts, then they took it to New York. And here was Buffalo Bill and Wild Bill on stage in New York in this sensational hit. I mean, people flocked to the box office because... You could see these two American legends, frontier legends, right there on stage in New York. So, uh, so it, it, it played for quite some time. And yes, as you said, Hickok was eventually got got fed up with it. He thought that being an actor was a silly way to, to make a living, and he got tired of being Wild Bill Hickok, playing Wild Bill Hickok. And he did have a, some problems with his eyesight, and the the, the the stage lights were bothering him. So one night he just had enough. He sh- he took his gun out, shot out the stage lights, and, and left the production. <laughs> Now, even though he's in his 30s, his health is deteriorating like a much older man. He he had the eyesight problem, and he was using a a, a broken billiard stick to walk with some as a cane, uh, yeah, as a cane, and so he, which also served as a, as a, an extra weapon sometimes. Yes, if you needed um, it, yeah, he used he used it a couple of times as as a, a very very convenient weapon, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it, he he was still that wandering guy, even though he was married to Agnes, and they were apart most of their uh, married life. 
uh, one day the wanderlust took him to Deadwood, and that's where we get to yeah, poker. He ended hands. up in Deadwood, yes, and he literally had a lot of mileage on him. He was 39 years old, and he turned 39 in May of 1876, and that summer he went to Deadwood. That there had been a gold strike in the Black Hills, and he saw a way to make a strike for himself by by doing some gambling in Deadwood and taking the money of uh, you know at the gaming tables of these people who were extracting gold from the hills. And um, he met Calamity Jane along the way, and and he really didn't care for Calamity Jane, but like many other women, she fell for him, and and she was the one who helped perpetuate for the years after Hickok's death, and and for decades later that they they had had this great romance, uh, ignoring that Hickok had been in love with another woman and actually married this other woman, Agnes Lake. Uh, but yes, he was in Deadwood, and and uh, there was a fellow named Jack McCall also in Deadwood, kind of a mysterious character, not his real name. What was he doing there? Nobody really knew. But, um, uh, you know, he had played cards the night before. This was in early August of 1876 with Hickok and a few others gotten wiped out. Hickok had made the gesture of, here's some money so you can at least buy yourself a meal. And here's a bit of advice, too. You know, don't come back and play cards unless you get better at the game because, you know, you're not that good. You're going to keep losing everything you have. And the next day when Hickok was playing cards with three other men in the saloon and he, you know, was did not this time have his back to the wall, uh, McCall sort of snuck up behind him and put a pistol to the back of his head and pressed the trigger, and and that was the only way to kill Hickok. You know, he he died as the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champ of gunfighters. Nobody who took him head on survived, but the only way to kill him was was to uh, sneak up from from behind. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been talking with Tom Clavin, the author of Wild Bill: The True Story of American Frontiers, first gunfighter. It's a great read. Uh, it's by St. Martin's Press. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can catch up with us on our YouTube channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.